Uh, we are in the middle, uh, week two of this Christmas um, through Life Point season Advent here. And uh, one of the things I want to tell you that we've been doing about three months ago, we, uh, we got behind a movement uh, amongst all SBC churches, Southern Baptist Church. Yes, we're Baptists, if you didn't know that. Uh, but we got, a part, we got behind this movement in the SBC churches that was called Who's Your One? Uh, and the idea behind that movement was this evangelistic movement that we would be a people that would commit to sharing the gospel with at least one person this season. Because a church that stops sharing the gospel and living outside of the church is not a New Testament church and actually will cease to be a church eventually. It'll just shrivel up and die. So we want to be a people that are always thinking outside of the church, living sent, sharing the gospel. Great reminder, a great opportunity. Have you, or better yet, has your one heard the gospel from you yet? I love the fact that you might be priming the pump, the pump on that or working on them. We use that language a lot of time. I'm working on them. Uh, listen, have you shared the gospel with them yet? <laughs> that's, that's the ultimate thing. I hope that you were able to get to it quickly. Um, and man, what a great story. But one of the ways that, that we have laid that before you, that vision, share the gospel one, to lay that before you and me so we wouldn't forget is we had that who's your one board. Uh, we put it in the back of the room. It's been in the lobby. It's been moved around different places. And it's a great reminder. We ask you to personalize that one and write their name on there because it just kind of, it personalizes the, the gospel sharing with an individual. Um, and one of the, the great things about it is, like I said, is it keeps us reminding of the vision out before us. But one of the dangers in the board. I want to tell you about one of the dangers in that board. So look at it every single week and see all of the names that are on there and just skim over all of them and completely miss the backstory that is behind every single one of those names on that board. We can easily do that, right? Uh, I have heard so many good stories about those names on there. People share a lot of, probably more information with me than maybe on you on that. But um, I've heard a lot of great stories. Today, I wanna share with you a story about one of those names that are on that board. And that name is Jacob Meyer. Uh, you might know Jacob, maybe not. But uh, Jacob uh, started coming to the creek several years ago after his wife, Heather, was invited by John Diamond. If you know John, uh, was invited by John as John was getting his hair cut by Heather at Great Clips. Uh, now, I know some of you are saying, no way, John Diamond, I thought he was a salon guy. No, he's Great Clips. Um, <laughs> go compliment on his hair later. Um, but he, he invited Heather to church. Jacob came around and they went and played softball together. Uh, Jacob played on our team and they just began to hang around our church and grow in our church. Well, what happened was about three months ago when we did launch the Who's Your One campaign, um, Jacob, uh, his wife, Heather, when we prompted people to go write names, Heather got up and Heather went to the back of the board and she wrote her husband's full name on there. Now, 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 we ask everybody to kind of put first names so it wouldn't, you know, kind of protect people's anonymity. But she's like, no, Jacob Meyer, my husband. <laughs> so she's not making it a secret. She's letting it know that was her one, all right? And uh, so, so that just was out there. And then about, I think it was about a month ago, 
we had one of our member classes, our new member classes where we gather and meet people and talk with them. And they are meeting with Joey Ryan. And Joey does our member class here and several other things here. But as Joey's talking with them about their story, um, when we open up, we want to hear their, their, their testimony. We want to hear about the gospel. We want to hear things. Well, as he began to listen to Jacob, he heard a lot more of a spiritual resume about Jacob. About Jacob grew up in church. His mom was on staff at a church. He knows the church. He's always been around church. And he, Joey began to feel, hey, man, I, I don't hear a lot of Jesus. I hear a lot of church. And we hear that a bunch, by the way. But, but something in Joey said, I, I need to share the gospel right now. I, I need to, to see if Jacob has a relationship with Jesus. And Joey faithfully shared the gospel with Jacob. Jacob heard. Jacob dropped his head. Jacob wept at the hearing of the gospel and says, I want that Jesus. I want salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. So that very moment, you have Jacob, who was a church kid, and got saved out of that. Got saved out of morality, church-going, works-based things. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful story. They wept together. And, man, I, I asked Jacob. I wouldn't hear that day. And I reached out to Jacob after I heard the story. I said, Jacob, man, what happened today? And Jacob said this. Uh, he, he didn't say, I invited Jesus into my heart. He didn't say that. Here's what Jacob did say. I felt the Lord come into my life and I experienced the gospel. That's awesome. Because that's what happens, right? And, and that happened and they leave that member class with Joey. And they walk out and Heather goes over to the board where her husband's name. She took a sharpie. And she wrote, answered. Let me show you a picture of that right there. That's awesome. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Listen, when, when you hear the backstories behind some of those names, there is a greater appreciation for them. And I say that because we are, this Christmas, walking through the genealogy of Jesus through Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And as I told you last week, in the midst of 42 names that are there, we have this great potential to skim past all of the names and fail to see the backstory in all of them and truly appreciate. So that's what we're doing. We're pausing and seeing and understanding some of the stories that are found in the genealogy. Because ultimately, I think we'll appreciate the Christmas story all of the, of the more. And we see G Jesus' family tree and all these stories. It makes us have a greater uh, affinity for the Christmas story. So as we're going to do that, let me, let me ask you to go to Matthew 1, 1 through 3. I'm just going to read the first three verses today. Um, we're not going to do all, all 17 as we did last week. Because the individual we're going to look at today is found in these first few verses. So let's look at Matthew 1, 1 through 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. All right, so let's just stop right there because last week we looked at Abraham, but Matthew, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is not a congregational letter. 
It's not like one of the epistles that Paul writes in the New Testament, not to a specific church. It's a congregational letter. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a narrative, uh, a narrative telling the story, the biography of Jesus Christ, his life from the womb to the empty tomb. All right, so he's writing to a primarily audience that was a Jewish audience. So the hearers of this gospel that Matthew's writing to were Jewish. They either were Jewish people who had already given their life to Jesus and converted, or they were considering uh, converting and following Jesus Christ. All right, so the genealogy that Matthew starts out with here is hugely important because the Jews thought very highly of genealogies. It was in the genealogies that they could trace back birthrights, um, inheritances, legitimacy, all of these things. So when they heard the genealogy of Jesus Christ, their ears went high. They, they knew something was massively significant in that very statement. Why? Because the name Jesus first, they knew what that name meant. Jesus in the Hebrew, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. And they knew what that was about. They knew that since the beginning of Genesis 3.16, that God has promised a savior and they have been waiting for that. So this Jesus is this savior. But then there's the word that follows Jesus, Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. All right, let's be clear on that. Christ is his title. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, what that word means to Christ is that he was the promised anointed one, the long-awaited one. They had been a people since Genesis 3.16 had been waiting for a deliverer, to be a king, to redeem his people. So they knew when he made this statement, this is the one we've all been waiting for. So this genealogy would have gotten their attention very fast. Last week, we looked at the first person in here that we were going to begin to unpack the story of Abraham. Uh, We looked at Genesis 12, where uh, God came in and made the Abrahamic covenant. He said, Abraham, through your family, there's going to be a lot of offspring. You're going to have a lot of kids. It's going to multiply over the earth. And through your lineage, one of your children will bless all of the nations And we know that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that very promise. He fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. All right? So what we're going to do today is fast forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 38. Um, So we're going to see this advancement of Abraham's family. And we're going to get introduced to a woman um, here. Her name is Tamar. And uh, this is going to be massively significant. Because most of the genealogies, especially in the scripture, uh, they didn't often mention females. Uh, They included males. And you're going to see today that Tamar is listed here amongst either five other women uh, that she is just as significant and just as important as any other man in the genealogies. Uh, Now, what we are going to find out about Tamar is that she's not known for her virtue. Uh, in fact, uh, she actually has a story, it's a very scandalous story of sexual immorality, of incest, of deceit, injustice. This is her story. And she's also the great, 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 many times great grandmother of Jesus. So this is a, a crazy story. I want to get you, uh, if you know this, you, you're like, oh, 
this is what you're doing for Christmas. Uh, but if you don't know the story, strap on because you might be like, this is what the Bible says? Yes, it does. All right, so I want to get you ready for that. Um, and if you have... Um, if you have children in the room, be ready to answer some questions on the way home today, all right? And that might be good. I don't know. So let me pray uh, before we read this, uh, this passage together, all right? Father, we have, uh, we have sat under uh, the singing of your word today. It is singing and songs and words and lyrics that are rich in your scripture. And we've sat underneath it. Father, we've sat underneath the praying of your word. And God, now as we uh, move into our, the worship time where we're going to preach, we sit under the reading of your word. I say under God because we often want to put ourselves over your word. And that's always a dangerous place to be. We want to sit under your word to show our submissiveness so would you put us in that place right now? Lord, we love it when we hear your prayers and, and we sing our prayers to you and we say your will be done. But in order for that to happen, our will has to be undone. So would you do that today too? Would you help us to, uh, to not minimize sin nor minimize the cross? We love you, save through a very unordinary story today. All of these stories point to you and your son. Help us to keep that in mind as we, we read together. We love you in the precious, mighty, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so you're in 38. I trust that you're there. Let me set up just, just briefly a bit of context here uh, before we get in here. Um, you saw the lineage there at the beginning of Matthew. You have Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. These sons were go, would go on to be the 12 uh, leaders of the 12 tribes um, of Israel. Now, God had promised the king would come through the lineage of Judah, and Judah was one of Jacob's sons. So that's who Jesus is coming through. That's why Revelation talks about that Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah. All right, so Judah's the lion. The issue, the real problem is, is that Judah was not one of the good sons of Jacob. You know the story of Jacob had 12. It, Joseph was the man. He was the Old Testament hero. He was the good guy. His brothers hated him. Judah is not good. Judah's the guy who, in fact, uh, came up with the idea to, uh, to sell his brother to the Egyptians and then take his robe, dip it in blood, and then go tell his dad, Jacob, that he was killed and mauled by an animal. So this guy's corrupt. He's not the good son Joseph was. We would think that God would be born into the lineage of Joseph, the good guy, not Judah. I mean, not him. Why is that important? Because that's how God works. God often works through the unworthy the most unlikely people to bring about his name. So Judah's the guy. He's the Judah here in chapter 38 as we read. So let's read this, 38, 1 through 5 together. It happened at a time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. 
He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb, and she bore him. So here we go. This 38, uh, where we see Judah. 38 is kind of weird because it's this almost abrupt interruption in the story of Joseph. 37 is about Joseph. 39 is about Joseph. But now we get this weird story in the middle of it, this abrupt interruption to talk about Judah. And Judah had just, after he'd sold his brother and done all those things, he just checked out away from his father and his brothers, and he just distanced himself to go hang out with the Canaanite people. All right, the ungodly people. He began to intermingle with them. And we know that was a great, great error. We know that ultimately intermingling with people who were not God's people would lead them to exile eventually. But Judah's doing his own thing. I'm showing you a progression of sin with Judah. So he's, he's doing his own thing, gets away. And then all of a sudden he has this, this buddy here, Hira. He comes across Hira, he's an Adulamite. And Adulamite, they don't love God either. So he has this horrible, horrible influence in his life, someone who doesn't love God. And every time Hira's name is mentioned, it's always trouble for Judah. He's bad company. All right? Y'all follow me? Listen for a second. Paul says in uh, Corinthians that bad company ruins good morals. And he was right. He was right. All right, so let's be careful with that. But the progression goes on. So he's already hanging out with Hira, his bad dude. He's an Adulamite. But then he sees a Canaanite woman. Abraham had already sternly warned them, do not take Canaanite women for your wives. Why? Because they were not God's people. But he saw her as what we see in the text he saw her, and he wanted her, and he married her anyway. What's the danger in that? Well, the danger is because he made a decision on choosing a wife simply by the eyes, the physical, not the spiritual. He took nothing in consideration of her love for God or if she did not. Listen, we have the same tendencies. My single brothers and sisters in Christ in the room, listen to me for a second. We have the same tendency, the same sinful tendency to choose relationships and spouses with our eyes. And when we do that, the eyes will infect the heart every single time. I beg and beg and beg, especially our students, don't settle for little boys who shave and say they go to church. Everybody goes to church, right? I mean, doesn't everybody go to church? You look for people who have Christ-likeness. That's who you look for. Why? Because the purity of your soul, the favor of God, the peace of your own conscience, and the temple of your body are not to be trifled with and sold at any price just so you can avoid loneliness and to tell people that you're in a relationship. I beg you, don't choose people based upon the external. Look for Christ, not even chemistry. Covenants aren't based upon chemistry. Covenants are based upon Christ likeness. 
All right, so you're seeing this progression, Judah jacked up. Don't do what Judah did here is the point. But let's go on with the story because Judah, um, he ended up marrying this Canaanite woman and he had three sons with her. Uh, The first one was Ur, the second one was Onan, and the third one was Shelah. All right, so let's pick up the story and you'll see an introduction here to uh, Tamar and she'll come in the scene here. Verses six through 11. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Merry Christmas. All right, you're probably not going to read that story at Christmas Eve with your family. All right, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is profitable for us. So we need to look through this and kind of move past our modern sensibilities. And let's read this together. But basically, what happened? We see uh, that Judah chose Tamar for his first uh, son's uh, wife, Ur. Mary Tamar. Well, he did that. And for some reason, we're told that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So God just absolutely killed him. That will get your attention pretty quick. All right. So he's gone. So according to the Leverite law, uh, it was the responsibility of the brother-in-law to take his brother's widow and to have children with her. So Judah turns to his second born son, Onan, and says, hey, I need you to take your brother's wife. I need you to give her a baby so this line of Judah will continue. And you got to know that Onan's sitting here thinking, really, dad, thanks a lot. I mean, God just killed, uh, killed my brother and you want me to come up next. So he wasn't too pleased with this. He didn't really like the idea of marrying and especially having a baby with her. But here's what he did do. He loved the benefits of the marriage He loved to have sex with Tamar. I want all the benefits of marriage, but I'm not going to marry her and I'm not going to give her a baby. So very politely and sensibly put here, he didn't give her his seed, right? He he, he interrupted that. She did not get pregnant and that infuriated the Lord. So God killed him too, (laughs) right? Well, continuing the progression the next brother uh, would be called to take on his son's wife and perform those very same duties. And and ladies, if you're thinking here, the brother, your brother-in-law should take on, if your husband were to pass and you're just thinking right now, you're sitting at the funeral and you look over at your brother-in-law, he's got this smile on his face, it's kind of creepy, and you're like, oh yeah, you're like throwing up in your mouth a little bit right now. That's what's happening here. So now he turns to uh, Judas like, Okay, I can do something here. I'm 0 for 2 with this woman right now. She's very dangerous. And if I give her to Shayla, he's probably going to die too because he thought it was all Tamar's fault. 
That's what he thought. You know how parents today, it's always someone else's fault. It's not my kid's fault. It's teacher's fault. It's friend's fault. It's boyfriend's fault. It's coach's fault. It's not my kid's fault. So that's the posture that Judah is taking here. He, he blames Tamar, but we know the story. It's really the fault of all of his sons. They were the disobedient ones, right? So he, he, he thinks, I can't give her to Shayla. I know how this is going to go down. So then what he does is he tries to scheme Tamar. He says, hey, here's what you're going to do. Shayla's not ready yet for marriage. So until he grows up and he's ready to do that, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Tamar, go live with your father-in-law. You go over there and wait, and then I'll give Shayla to you later, and you'll get your baby. That's what, basically what's happening here. Although he had no intentions of ever doing that. He was stalling, stalling, stalling. Tamar caught on to this, and she knew he never had an intention to give her a child through her youngest son. So let's pick up in the text. You're like, man, is this stuff in the Bible? God, it's crazy. All right? Genesis 38, 12 through 18. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Here's this guy again. We know it's not going to go good. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that, I may come, that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on garments of her widowhood. So Judah's wife dies. And after the period of mourning that he went in, and he says, I'm going up to Timnah. You see, Judah had a sexual appetite, so to speak. And his specific sexual appetite was for prostitutes. So he goes up with his boy Hira, right? Trouble again. He's rolling up there. And he's thinking, what happens in Timnah stays in Timnah. Wrong. He gets there and he, he begins to do his, his, his soliciting, right? And, he, and, and, and Tamar hears about him going to Timnah. And she says... I know my father-in-law. I know he has a thing for prostitutes. Now I'm going to insert myself and devise a plan and scheme my way into having Judah's baby. So she dresses like a prostitute. She puts a veil over her head, disguising herself. She's walking the streets of the night by Enaim, and Judah rolls by and sees her, screams out, yells at her, Hey! What's it going to take, right? He's, he's t she says, hey, what do you have to give me? He says, I got a young goat to give you in exchange for your services. And that's how you know you're in the Old Testament, right? A goat. 
so she's like, okay, well, that's cool. He didn't have a goat with him. So she's like, can you give me a pledge that you're going to give me a goat? I don't really have anything. And he said, how about uh, the signet, the staff, and the rod? How about those things? Will that, will that seal the deal? Will you take this as payment kind of thing? And she said, yes. Why that's important for you to know about the signet and these things, the signet, the seal, and the staff, those were very personal items of identification, Those were the equivalent of his driver's license, his social security card, his debit card, whatever. They they, they were tied to him and everyone knew this was his stuff. So he, he had one thing on his mind, here, take it, right? He didn't care. So she took it, they sealed the deal, but Judah got way, way more than he paid for. Tamar conceived a child by her father-in-law. This was blatant incest. Tamar had inserted herself in the messianic bloodline because Judah kept his sons from her. So she said, I'm going to do what I got to do. I want a baby. And I know what this baby is going to mean. I'm going to take it in my own hands. And therefore, she did these very things. And Judah was to blame for these things. Now, Judah, following up on his, his offer, he went and sent one of his servants, hey, go take the, the goat, go find this lady of the night there, and you'll just give her the goat, she'll give me back all my stuff, my signet, my seal, and my staff. They get there, they can't find her, and rather than hunt for her, uh, Judah says, just forget about it. It's months later, let's just let it go. I don't want to subject myself to the public scrutiny of going to get my stuff back, you know? So um, that's what happens. Only that's not where the story ends. Let's look at 28, or I'm sorry, 38, 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. So three months later, Judah catches word. Hey, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant by sexual immorality. He's infuriated. Even though he didn't give her uh, his son, Shayla, he's still mad about it. She's committed adultery and immorality here. So he's so irate. The law required to put, him, put her to death, but he takes it a step further and says, I'm going to burn her. He was still mad over the death of his first two sons. So as they're taking Tamar away to execute her, she screams out and says, Hey, I need you to give a message to Judah. I need you to take these things, the signet, the seal, and the staff. I need you to take these, take them to Judah, and you tell Judah that these things are the the items of my baby's daddy. That's what she does. Judah sees his stuff, and he is broken. 
he immediately knew that he had committed incest with his daughter-in-law. He knew, though, that he had kept his son, Shelah, from her, and it was wrong. And what did he say? She is more righteous than I. Now, he wasn't saying that Tamar was not at fault. She's guilty of a lot of things here. But he is saying, hey, it's not Tamar's fault anymore. It's my fault. I have committed a sin. You see, the way that the story kind of lays out, it's, you know, we see even after this, she, she obviously goes on and has the baby, all right? So six months later, she has the baby. She has twins, in fact. Uh, she has twins that are Perez and Zara. And Perez would be the one out of the twin to continue on in the Messianic line that would eventually bring in King David and then ultimately King Jesus. Tamar had successfully inserted herself in Jesus' family bloodline. It's crazy. This is the great, 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 many times grandmother of Jesus. This is not the way, nor the people, nor the family that we would expect God to use in order to bring Christmas through. Like, we just, we just don't think that at all. This is, why is that? Why use Tamar in this lineage? Why not a, a woman of virtue? Why not Deborah? Why not a different woman? Why is it Tamar? I think that's the point of the gospel. Why, why is this genealogy full of sinful, immoral people that come, that, that come from Christ, that lead to Christ. Why is all these people used to lead to Christ? For the very same reason that you and I come from Christ. It's the very same reason. Look at this point as we wrap up. I'm going to give you this. Because Jesus came from who he came for. Jesus came from who he came for. Jesus came from sinners because he came for sinners. He didn't come for good people. He didn't come for those who didn't need a physician who were well. He came for the sick, the tired, the broken, the liars, the cheaters, the adulterers, the prostitutes, people like me. That's who he came for, not good people. And I think, I know that back in the Old Testament, and I know this to be true today, there are still so many people that get this wrong. And they think that if they're good enough, that God will save them. If I I just do enough good, if I just do enough good deeds, if I'm better than most, if I can give some cash to a homeless pauper on the side of the interstate, if I can donate my clothes to Goodwill, if I can give some Christmas gifts at Christmas, if I can just go to church more, if I could just do these things, then I will be good enough, and then God will save me. No, no, no. That is the opposite of Christianity. Picture 
God on a mountain. He's up on the mountain very, very high. We are not on the mountain. We are at the very, very bottom. No matter what we do, our works, our deeds, our effort, no matter which pathway we take, we'll never get to the God of the mountain. We'll never attain it. We'll never reach us. We'll fall short all the time. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is that the God of the mountain came down off of the mountain to us in the flesh through his son, Jesus Christ, to live good enough for us because we couldn't be good enough. In fact, perfect. To die our death that we deserve from not being good enough And then on the third day, escaping the grave, which which no one ever did in the entire history of the universe. So that all who would believe in that gospel would experience Christmas. You see, if you're in Christ today, the only reason that you can stand before God as if you were Christ is because Christ stood before God as if he were you. It's all grace. It's all mercy. For those in Christ, you stand before God as if you were Christ. In his eyes, believers are Christ. Why? Because he doesn't see you. He only sees Christ. Paul says our life is hidden in Christ. So when he looks upon us, he doesn't see us. He only sees Christ. And God loves to save sinners. He delights in it. It's, it's, a, it's no small thing for him to do. It's no big thing for him to do. He delights and loves saving broken people. But the deal with the gospel is, is that you will never embrace the gospel for what it is if you do not come to terms with your sin and the powerlessness that you have to overcome it. Before Christmas can be a delight to you, it's an indictment on you. If you don't need a Savior, you don't need Christmas. Do you understand? The only reason you'd even celebrate Christmas is if you're celebrating a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. Have you ever done that in your life? I'm praying. I have been praying. There might be a Jacob Meyer here today. There was a Jacob amongst us that had been churched moral, tried to do good, trying to be their own savior, and that today, through the hearing of the gospel, which you just heard, that you would stop trying to save yourself. It's useless. There's no shot. Lay down, submit, surrender, give your life over to the one who did it for you. That's the gospel. And I pray that that has happened uh, or will happen in here today. You know, once you become a someone who follows Jesus, you know, you're not defined by your mistakes anymore. Your greatest failures do not define who you are. Why? Because God is greater and bigger than your greatest mistake you've ever made in your life. He takes you and your life, which is disgraceful, and then he makes it graceful. You have not out the cross of Christ. His extension of salvation is given to all. Have you believed? 
I think uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this upon his dying bed. They asked him, what was the most important thing in your life, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man who knew Jesus Christ. And he said this, I, I, I know two things are certain in this world. He says, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you hold firm to both of those things and you cling to them for the rest of your life. Don't ever lose grip of either one of those things. You are, we are great sinners. We are, we are, we are. We're not good people. We're great, great sinners. But then we jump over here and we have a greater Savior and Jesus Christ. So Jesus came from those who he came for. Our second point, and this will be the last one here. What do we do now with that? What is God like? What does he want me to know? Now what does God want us to do? Last point. Those who come from Jesus go for Jesus. If you come from the lineage of Jesus and he's adopted you into his family by his grace and called you child of God, if you come from Jesus, you are called to go for Jesus. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. A saved one is a sent one. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And this is what Christmas at Life Point is all about. This is why this year we're not having an attractive event to invite people to, which we still will, we want you to do that, right? We still want you to invite people to church and Christmas Eve and all. But ultimately, what we're trying to do this year is be like God. God was a sent one. And therefore, as us, his children, are to be sent ones to go out into our cities to take Christmas to them. On your, uh, on your app, we, asked, we talked about this a little bit last week, um, all the different ways that you can kind of do that. I want to tie a couple of things into our story today. Do you know that Tamar, the story today, that Tamar was a Gentile, that she, in fact, was not a Jew, um, that God used a Gentile woman in his lineage. Why? He wants to show us and kill any ethnocentric pride that is in us. You see, the Jews had a, an Israelite ethnocentric pride that said, we're Jewish, you're not, right? And God hates that. So what did he do? He infused in the lineage Gentile people, non-Jews, to show those people God hates racism. It would be very wise for us to not fall into the same trap as the Israelites and be prideful about our American status or the color of our skin. We would be wise to engage the nations. In fact, this, this lineage that we'll see, it's full of non-Jewish people. Why? Because God's heart is for all people of all nations. Do you know where the nations are at? They're everywhere. They're your neighbors now. You don't have to cross the sea to go see the nations now. You cross the street. You cross your, uh, your, your cubicle at your office. You cross uh, lines at school, cafeteria tables. The nations are everywhere around us. 
Let me tell you about a specific place that they are, in fact, that we partner with in Smyrna. Community servants in Smyrna, also known as Weary Housing. You know, just in that little community, there are so many nationalities represented. People over there, sitting there, waiting for you to take Christmas to them teaching them through English to their parents, to young children, a serving, caring, all of these relationship-building things so that you would take Christmas to them. Let me tell you about another one, Operation Saving Lives, which is a local organization here uh, where we're partnering with life preservation because we Christians are pro-life. Let me sure we're clear on that. It's not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. All right, so we're pro-life and we believe in the preservation of life. Did you see in the story today the, the links that Tamar went to to have a baby? She knew the importance of having a child, the, the sanctity of life. She knew that children were a heritage from the Lord. And that's what we do with Operation Saving Life. We fight to give young moms opportunities and resources to show that there's a, a baby inside that has a heartbeat with a mobile ultrasound unit, preservation of life. So you have an opportunity to go serve at Operation Saving Lice for that very reason. Food bank. And I told you that's one of the ones that we do. We've called you to give a lot of donations, food supplies from your house. That's awesome. Do that. The city in Smyrna, in fact, has asked us to do that. They called us at LifePoint and said, hey, we need you. There's a need in the, in the city. Can you provide it? We said, yes, we sure can. And we've asked you to bring cans and put them in the food bank things. And all. That's awesome. But you, know, you guys know I told you last week, I said this and I'll say this again. A can of corn doesn't save anybody. Bring the can, but stay Go serve at the food bank, linger, build relationships, rub shoulders with people that will give you an opportunity to share the gospel. Because you know who's at the food bank, you know who's at Weary Housing, you know who's in your neighborhood? A bunch of Tamars and a bunch of Judas. People who have messed up, jacked up families, lives, adultery, sexual immorality, wickedness, cheating, stealing, lying. It's all around us, isn't it? I mean, we know this. It's everywhere. But we, as Christians, we go to them. And that's what Christmas at LifePoint is all about. Get on the app. Pick something this week. Man, step into it, and you will be blessed. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. And you have shown us that all Scripture is profitable for teaching. God, we've also seen your sovereign hand on this story that seemingly uh, kind of appear like a sideline, God, like you're not intervening. But God, we know that you are working all things for good in this story and that you were going to do anything that you could to preserve the messianic bloodline. And no sin or decisions by man or woman could thwart your purposes. You are sovereign. Thank you. God, would you mobilize this church? Would you mobilize us people to go out in Smyrna? God, I pray that there would be a buzz around this city. The people will be talking about the people at Life Point Church, that they simply cannot ignore them. What a beautiful thing. God, move your people in Jesus' precious name. Amen.